Welcome to the Uncommon Church Podcast. Today, you'll hear a message from our pastor, Josie Kerrigan. We hope that it helps you to know God, grow strong in your faith, and do all that God has called you to do. Maybe some of you guys don't know my story, but I grew up in Sweden, and um, my, my parents were pastors in Sweden. My whole family Swedish, like grandma, grandpa, like I'm the only one who lives in America out of my whole family. So Swedish, and I wanted to just tell you a little bit about like when I was growing up, in my school, I was the only one that believed in God. Um, all growing up until actually my mom started a Christian school just because of her own, like for her own kids and for the next generation. And if you guys know, <clears throat> in Sweden, um, it's a socialist government. You're not allowed to start private schools, really. So it was only the, there were only two Christian schools in all of Sweden. My mom's was the second one. The other one had started, I think, just a year prior. And uh, we actually came over to America. I remember it. I, I believe I was 10. And we came to Texas. We came to um, DFW, I'm not even sure, but I think we visited Shady Grove when it was still Shady Grove. We went to Tulsa. We went to Victory Christian Schools. My mom could look at curriculum and figure out what we could do that would be approved in Sweden so that we could teach our kids or so she could teach her kids something different than what was being offered in the public schools. But because of growing up the only person believing in God and none of my friends like, they thought it was weird. It was not normal to believe in God. It wasn't even that they were like, well, I'm just a nominal Christian. They just thought it was weird to think that there actually was a higher power. They were pretty much all atheists. And so I grew up having to, or getting to, I guess, defend my faith all the time and knowing that people thought I was weird, that I was different. And, um, excuse me. <clears throat> when I came to America, I was a junior in high school, and I started my junior year in a Christian school in Mississippi. And it was like such a culture shock in all the best ways and some not so great ways, but um, mostly as far as it came to Christianity, great ways. It was like all of a sudden, everybody believed in God. Everybody was a churchgoer. Everybody was like, yay, Jesus. I mean, they might not like always be living out their faith, and um, some of them, you know, were pretty much nominally Christian, not Christian in belief, but at least they wouldn't say like, oh, you're so weird for believing in God. So I was like, this is awesome. This is amazing. This is everything I've ever wanted. I don't have to feel like the odd one out all the time. Thank you, God, for bringing me to America. But can I tell you something? Over the past, what has that been? Like 30 years since I came, I've seen such a shift in the culture of this nation. And I love America. I love living here. I love my family. Like, I feel American as much as I feel Swedish. And it breaks my heart to see the way this nation has turned. And I know that we live in Texas, which is kind of still like a little God bubble. And for some of you, you don't ever venture outside of your little God bubble because you come to church and you have your youth group and you send your kids, you know, you homeschool them or you send them to a Christian school and all the people you follow on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter believe the same thing that you do and you watch Christian television and you listen to Christian radio because we have all that here. And that's awesome. But I want to talk to you today about the fact that there's a whole shift in culture and shift in beliefs that's happening that we can even see in Texas. Like, let's just be honest when we look around. Not everybody 
is of the same mindset and beliefs that we are. And I know that, you know, in the Northeast and the Northwest, and if we look at places like Los Angeles or Washington State or New York City, and we can be like, oh man, it's gotten really dark there. Well, we need to make sure it doesn't get dark here. <laughs> um, and we need to make sure to take our nation back because if we're going to advance, which is what God's called us to do, it doesn't mean like just advance inside of our church walls. It's like out there, we need to be pushing back darkness. And part of that darkness is ideologies and beliefs that do not line up with scripture, that do not line up with the word of God at all. Can I tell you something? If you are a Christian, not in name, but in belief, like not just you say, I go to church, I'm a Christian, but if you literally believe that the word of God is true and that you stand for what he writes in scripture and for, you know, for Christian beliefs and you live your life that way, you are now, like, we are in the minority. We are, I think it was Dr. Evans that said it, said our beliefs have made, has, have made us to where we are now the visiting team. Like when you stand up for Christian, Judeo-Christian values and beliefs and, and literal Bible truth, people are not cheering, generally speaking. Somebody said amen. I guess that's good. I don't know, but it's true. <laughs> but the thing is, we need to wrap our mind around the fact that it's okay to be the visiting team and that the visiting team gets to win too. It doesn't matter if people are cheering us or booing us. We need to stand up for what is true and make sure that we know what we believe. Right? Amen. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And I, I want to talk to, about um, Daniel, the book of Daniel, where Daniel was brought into the kingdom of Babylon. And they had different belief systems from Daniel and from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to look at the story. They were of another kingdom. And when Jesus came to earth, he came to bring the kingdom of God to earth, which means he brought God's way of doing things, God's way of seeing things. And it's different. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. And it doesn't matter who's on our side or who's not, our, on, not on our side. Truth is truth. It's not subject to your feelings or your emotions or popular opinion. Truth is truth. God has a kingdom, and we are his ambassadors here on earth. And just like Daniel, when he was in Babylon... We are to advance the kingdom of God and stand true for what we believe. So I don't think we should be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. We need to recognize that there are powers at work trying to change and replace our belief system with a counterfeit one that sometimes sounds really, really nice. It can sound very beautiful and tolerant and enlightened and amazing. But if it doesn't line up with the truth of the word of God, it's a counterfeit and it's a lie. So you have to choose kingdom, no matter the negativity or fear or ideology that is thrown at us. We have to stand up for the truth of the word of God. So let's go to Daniel together, Daniel chapter one. We're gonna read verse one through five just to give you a little bit of context of what was happening here. Or actually, let's start in um, verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, I think is how you say it, his chief of staff, to bring the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family. So the king of Babylon had conquered Judah. He had taken the whole nation. He had completely annihilated it. It was now part of Babylon. And what he decided to do was he wanted some Jewish, some Hebrew, some Israelite young men to be brought to 
Babylon. So his chief of staff went down there, um, and they had been brought to Babylon as captives. And he said, select strong, healthy, good-looking young men. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, that they are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and that they're suitable to serve in the royal palace. So he wanted, like, the cream of the crop. Like, all the men, the Christian young men that all you single ladies are looking for, that's who he wanted in Babylon. It's like, good-looking, smart, knew what, how to, you know, well-spoken, people that are suitable. And um, it says, make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning. They're gifted with knowledge and good judgment. So, then he says, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. And they were to be trained for three years. And then they would enter into royal service. So here are these young men. Teenagers, really. For sure, we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were teenagers. And they are separated from their family. And they're brought to the king's palace. And I think that verse right there of just him bringing them to himself points to one of the first three strategies that I see in here that the enemy uses, that Babylon used at that time, but I feel like the enemy is using in our day and age again to brainwash someone into complying with Babylon's way of thinking. And the first thing is isolation. He takes them away from their family, away from their friends, away from people of like belief, and he puts them in an unfamiliar situation. I think we saw in 2020 how detrimental isolation can be. And I want to just encourage you strongly today. Right now, it is so important. I mean, it always is. But even if you're going to overcome the belief system of this world, that you do not isolate from the body of Christ. You groups are important for a reason because you're not meant to thrive in isolation. When we're isolated, it tears down our resilience. The Bible says that we're stronger together. And so they were brought into Babylon and it was on purpose that they took them away from everybody else that they knew. Everybody else that believed like them, that thought like them, that talked like them. Because they knew if they could get them alone, they could change their way of thinking. And they started young. Did you notice that? They didn't say like, bring us wise Men with gray hair that have a lot of experience. No, 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 because you can't brainwash somebody that's already so set in their beliefs. They say, give us the young men. Give us the young men. What is one of the areas that we want to advance in? The next generation. What is the enemy after? The next generation. If he can change the way they think by isolating them from what the church teaches, from community that thinks according to the word of God, they're easier to indoctrinate with Babylon's ways of thinking. So that's the first thing is making sure that we stay in community because the enemy would want to isolate you. Old or young, when we are not in community, we can so easily fall prey to other beliefs without us even knowing it. The second thing is a little bit later on in verse six. It says this, Daniel, Hananiah, Mish, Mishael and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from all the tribe of Judah. And the chief of staff renamed them with Babylonian names. The second thing 
is identification. The enemy would like to label you with something other than what God says that you are. So they brought these young men and they isolated them and then they gave them new names. So Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but those were not even their real names. Those were names that the Babylonian king that had taken them captive and brought them into his temple had put on them. Said, I don't want you to be called this anymore, we're going to call you this. Like if you call, if you say Josie, I'm going to turn and look because I know who I am, that's my name. I remember um, bringing up our kids, something that we did a lot was hey, you're a Kerrigan, meaning that we think a certain way, we act a certain way, and if you're a Kerrigan, we don't do that. Or if you're a Kerrigan, we do this. And it was very intentional because we wanted them to be proud of who they were and know as a family we were behind them, and this is how we act in our family. This is how we're raising our kids. It's the same in the family of God. We act a certain way. We talk a certain way. We think a certain way. That is our identity. We are sons and daughters of God. So don't forget what your spiritual parents taught you. Don't forget what people are teaching you in your group, what you're hearing from the word of God, the identity that God has placed on the inside of you. The enemy would love nothing else than to rip that identity from us and label us as something else. We're labeled in this world a lot, you know, intolerant, all kinds of different words that they used to describe Christians. That's okay. Who does God say that you are? I also feel like on a much deeper level, there's an identity crisis, again, for the next generation, especially in the area of sexuality. If you've been paying attention in the last 20 years, the last 10 years, and then the last five years, just how quickly it has gone from what God speaks as truth in his word of male and female, he created them to there being so much confusion about gender because the enemy just wants to take away identity that God has established. The Bible says that the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Even if it sounds beautiful, he is not our friend. <laughs> he has sinister motives. And when he tries to relabel and re-identify who God created you to be, it's not with good intentions. God is the one who created us, and he knows best. Like, that's the whole point of the Bible. And I think sometimes we get embarrassed to stand up and say, no, I really think that God's way is best. But it is, and I want to talk to you parents for just a minute regarding raising the next generation. I, I could do, like, a whole seminar on this, but I wanted to give you some resources because of this whole... Um, identity crisis when it comes to gender. If you could go ahead and put that up on the screen, actually. Um, if you want to just take a picture of that. I didn't want to spend too much time, but moralrevolution.com is an amazing ministry that I would recommend. They have um, resources, one called Parenting Sexuality. Let's talk about sexuality. There is a course called Parent Well, Raising Kids in a Hypersexualized Culture. And then I also want to recommend Mama Bear Apologetics. Because we need to know what we believe. And I know it says mama bear apologetics, but can I just speak to the dads in the room for a second? Don't just push it off to your wife to teach the kids what we believe. <laughs> so if you're a dad in this room, we applaud you. Because if you were listening to Brad's sermon the other day, there is a fatherlessness. Like it's an 
pandemic in our country of fathers being missing in the home. So if you're a dad, thank you. Thank you for teaching your kids, for raising your kids, and teach them how to defend their faith. Teach them how to spot the lies of the enemy that are so prevalent in our culture, like how to weed through all these ideologies that are coming at them from such an early age now in school and from friends. So Mama Bear Apologetics, not just for moms, like dads, I, I wish there was a daddy apologetics. I don't know of one, but you know, fine, whatever. Read the mama one. And, um, and there's one on sexuality that they've put out as well. I super recommend it. I think we may have some at the book table unless they've run out, but these are all available on Amazon. Can I just tell you, and I know this is a little bit more like lecture style today, but I felt like it was so important. We need to have the tools in our arsenal so that we can defend ourselves against the lies of the enemy. If we don't really know what we believe, but we just like, oh, I'm on a Bible reading plan and I read like a little bit of Psalms. And I mean, I know it says in here somewhere that like, it's not going to cut it when you find yourself in Babylon. So educate yourself. I like, even if it's, if you don't have kids, get those books anyway, just to learn more about the kingdom ways of identity when it comes to gender. It is so important. So regarding identity, and I don't know if you guys know this, but there's some states now where you can get a birth certificate. I'd heard this said, but I really like, I Googled it, is this true? And it is. And when the kids are born, it's like male, female, or other. And the, the parents will leave it blank, just opting for the child to fill it in once they feel like they've identified with whatever gender role. God created us in his image. And the enemy is after robbing a whole generation of their identity. And we cannot let that happen. We have to learn how to speak in love. We have to learn how to minister to people who are not sure of who they are in Christ. And we can't just stay within our church walls and not talk to people who believe different than we do. That's not going to help. The light is meant to shine in the darkness. Not in here where it's already light, right? So I just want to challenge you and like implore you with that. That you, yourself, learn how to talk about biblical sexuality to people in your sphere of influence and to kids. And if you're, you know, if you don't have kids, that's okay. But whoever you come in contact with that you're mentoring here at church or whoever's in your you group, when people have questions, do you know how to answer them? It matters. Terms like, well... Yeah, I think we're going to just go on to the next thing. But it is so important that we know. Because the third thing that happened in Babylon, and we saw that, that for three years they were to learn new literature and speak a new language. Did you catch that when we were reading in, in Daniel? That for three years they were to be brought to the temple and they were to be indoctrinated. And that is the third way, is indoctrinization. Is you are isolated, you are relabeled, your identity is taken, and now you're indoctrinated. And so they were to read new books and learn a new language. There's a lot of new words floating around like intersectionality and progressivism and non-binary and critical theory and all these things that are happening in our culture, not just with our kids, with, but it's all trying to indoctrinate how we think and make us feel like this is wrong. This is not Wrong. Like some people, they just have this like, especially educated people, have you noticed they're like, they have this little bit of superiority, like we just think you don't have a brain because you blindly believe the Bible. And they just act like, you know, 
you just believe this book of ancient texts and they'll make you feel less than, but can I tell you something? Don't be intimidated. Everybody got their belief system from something and from somewhere. So they get it from people, they get it from books, they get it from ideas. Don't be ashamed to say that I get my belief system from an ancient text that's 6,000 years old with millions of proven historical facts of victory stories, like how long of a history has your belief system and what victories does it prove? This is truth. And don't be ashamed to say that this is what you believe. Of 6,000 years of written history of ancient texts from people that we believe were inspired by God to write it through the Holy Spirit. It's been passed down for generations. And this is our foundation. So don't be ashamed of that. And I think there's such a disconnect and massive gap between what the culture says about Christianity versus what is really true and the statistics. And so I wanted to just, again, kind of lecture style this morning. I want to show you some statistics and some cultural um, beliefs, if you will. The first one is this. We're going to have some slides up on the screen. The first one is this. Culture says Evangelicals aren't really pro-life, they're just pro-birth. They don't care about babies after they're born. But the data shows that conservative Christians adopt more children than any other population segment, more than doubling the norm. Go ahead, I think I have a graph of that. See, so we more than double in adoption rates. But people will tell us like, oh, you're just so hateful and you don't even care once they're born, you don't care at all. It's not true. The next one is, the church is emotionally repressive and destructive to your mental health. Have you guys seen that just kind of thought pattern floating out there? Like, it's just not good for your mental health. I love this. The data says, regular church attenders dramatically improves your mental health. The only people in the U.S. whose mental health improved in 2020 was regular church attenders. Yeah, come on. I think I have an article if you want to scroll to the next one. This is the Washington Times. Those reporting the best mental state were the faithful. 44% of weekly churchgoers said their mental health was excellent, more than any other subgroup, and the only one with levels of emotional health in 2021 that was better than before the pandemic. That's not really talked about, is it? (laughs) But that's the truth. There is a gap between the truth and the perceived or perception or the ideology or trying to portray the church to be a certain way. Okay, the next one. Evangelicals don't care about the poor. They just want political power. The data says that church-going Christians are exponentially more generous to the poor, both with time and money. Go ahead and show those next two graphs. In the past seven days, Americans who went to church weekly versus other Americans, 65 versus 41. The next one. Annual charitable donations. Let's be honest and be able to be proud that we are Christians, that we're part of a church, that we believe in the Bible. It makes us better. It makes us better for society. It makes us better for the world. It makes us better humans. Like, that's the whole point, right, is treating others well. Okay, next one. The church is oppressive to women, and it's a tool for the abusive patriarchy and creates toxic relationships for women. The data says, conservative Christian, gender traditional, church-going women are the happiest in their relationships in America, and abuse decreases by 50%. Isn't that amazing? Like, as a woman, I'm like, yes, come be a Christian, you know, be proud of that. And again, I have resources, I just didn't want to do too many, but let's do the next one. Culture, the church is morally backwards and bad for society. 
The data shows that church is awesome for society because the higher the church attendance in a community, the lower the burglary, burglary, larceny, robbery, assault, and homicide, etc. The list goes on and on of that. It is better for a community to have many Christians. Culture says church is irrelevant or ideologically and emotionally harmful for raising children. The data shows that regular church attendance significantly decreases all three of the big three dangers of adolescence, which is depression, depression, substance abuse, and sexual promiscuity. The world is selling us a lie, but the facts show that God's way is better. I'm just going to read through a few more. I didn't even make the, the signs because I want to move on for time. The church doesn't help your marriage. Divorce rates are the same. That is not true. 35% less divorce rate inside the church. Culture says church is the waste of time. <laughs> Harvard and Oxford actually had all these um, writings that I saw that life expectancy goes up by seven years. So you're actually, years are added to your life if you attend church. So that's a good thing. Culture says the church is sexually repressive and anti-sex and a purity culture, quote unquote, is bad. But the data shows in polls that church-going conservative Christians are the ones that are the most fulfilled in their sex lives. God knows best. Somebody said amen. It's a good thing. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so here's my favorite. I think I have a picture for this from the Wall Street Journal. Go ahead and put this up. This, I came across this. Look at this. Too risky to wed in your 20s? Not if you avoid cohabiting first. What? So this is not a Christian magazine, but it says research shows that marrying young without ever having lived together with a partner makes for the lowest divorce rates. Can I tell you, God knows best. His ways are better. The world keeps trying to figure it out and say that their way is better because it feels better and it appeals more. But God, when you do it his way, it turns out best because he made us. He created us. He knows what's best for us. So we should, again, be proud to defend our faith and not buy in to the ideology that's peddled all around us. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, We demolish arguments and make every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We demolish arguments. Know what to say. Get educated. Get resources. It's important. Parents, I want to talk to you again because I really felt this focus on the next generation. You may not know what your teachers are teaching your children. You should find out. You should be informed. You should be a part of the PTA. You should go talk to your teachers. If they have ideologies and belief systems that are different than yours, don't just trust that they're not going to teach them to your kids reprogram your kids after school if you need to and help them to discern truth from lies and remember the identity that God has given them before the enemy robs them of theirs. When they hear things like you're either oppressed or an oppressor, that's a lie. If they hear things like, well, if you don't feel like a boy, maybe you're not one, it's a lie. There are things that are becoming the norm to say. If they're teaching things that are not in line with kingdom, parents, we need to give them a grid for their faith so that they can distinguish between the truth and the lie. Because sometimes it sounds very similar and it sounds very good, 
but it's not the same. It's not the same, and it's important. So what did Daniel do? If we look at the book of Daniel, we all know, or probably most of us know, that he was not indoctrinated. He's one of the big heroes of the Bible. If you ever went to children's church, you know that he is Daniel in the lion's den. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, but came out without even smelling of smoke. They survived being in Babylon. And as a matter of fact, Daniel served four, or potentially some scholars think five kings and served them well, and was just highly esteemed in Babylon without compromising his beliefs. So what are some things we can draw? Like there's so much, and I encourage you to read and study Daniel. It's a fascinating and amazing book. But I wanna just pull out three things real quick as we come to a close. The first thing that Daniel didn't do is he didn't participate in anything that was anti-kingdom. He just didn't participate. When he was brought to the temple and he was offered food that was not kosher for him to eat as a Jew, he didn't throw a temper tantrum He kindly, and he found favor with the people that he was asking of, asked for a religious exemption, if you will, and he was granted it. He said, please, can I not eat this food? I don't need you to get me anything extra, but if I could just have the veggies instead of also eating the meat. He didn't compromise, but he wasn't being a bully about it. He wasn't being rude about it. He just did not participate. Later on, he was asked to bow before an idol. You guys probably know this story. He refused to participate fearlessly, even if it cost him a lot. He refused to participate. The second thing he did was he was bold about his faith. Like, he did not shy away from it. If we read later on in the story, there were people that were very against Daniel, and they wanted to trap him doing something wrong so that he would lose favor with the king. They wanted to get rid of him. And we see in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when Daniel learned about the law that had been signed, so this law was the law that you were no longer allowed to pray to anybody except for the king. You could not pray to any other God. They flattered the king and said, hey, you're the greatest person on the planet. Don't allow anybody to pray to anyone else but you. Because they knew that Daniel prayed to the one true God. So what did Daniel do? It says, when he heard about the law that had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. And here's my favorite part, with its windows opened. He didn't go in and like this time, I know I usually pray upstairs with the window open, but now I'm going to pray in the basement with the window closed and hope that nobody sees me. No, he was bold about his faith. He was open about it. How are people to know if we don't tell them? We cannot, we must not hide our faith. We are the light of the world. And it went well for Daniel. I mean, he got thrown into the lion's den, but God was with him. If you suffer persecution, if there are consequences for you being bold about your faith and not participating in things that are anti-kingdom, God will take care of you. Because your identity is what? You're a son and a daughter of the Most High God. He's not going to leave you hanging. He is proud of you. Lastly, and I think this is so key, Daniel didn't make an enemy of those he was called to influence. I touched on it earlier, but... He served under several kings. The kings were actually wicked. They were anti-kingdom. But Daniel served them well. And it's almost confusing. Like he helped them expand their territory, even though they were not godly kings, because that was his assignment. 
He honored those in authority, but he didn't participate. He spoke clearly, he spoke boldly. You are the light of the world. We need to be bold about our faith, we need to know what we believe, but we cannot antagonize and make enemies out of those that God has called us to love. Daniel going out and being upset at the king and mouthing off about this new law and decree wasn't gonna help anything. He just went up and prayed like he was supposed to with his window open. He wasn't trying to make trouble. And did you know that Cyrus the Great was the last king that Daniel served under and um, Daniel was a student of the word of God. It shows us that he studies the book of Jeremiah and that he reads the scriptures and I think he had the ear of the king. Did you know that Cyrus was the first one on earth, at least that we have record of, to write a bill of rights, a bill of rights for people. It's what the bill of rights of the UN is actually established on now. You can still, there's like a historical, it's like this scroll, not a scroll, I don't even know what it's called, but it's like a stone thing that has the first bill of rights. What do you wanna bet that Daniel and the voice of the kingdom and of God who believes in equality and freedom was an influence in the ear of Cyrus. I don't know where God has you, but wherever you are, Speak kingdom truth, even to authority, but speak it in love. Don't let anybody change what you believe. And be mindful. Be mindful that you don't let your mind get diluted by the thinking of this world. Would you hop up on your feet? When you hear things, when you hear ideologies, when you hear theories, when you hear people on the media, if it's rooted in criticism, in deconstructing and destroying and overthrowing and tearing down, it's not kingdom. If there's no honor in it, no gratitude in it, it's not kingdom. If it despises authority and it hates power, if it fosters division, it's not kingdom. If it labels people by their race or gender or job or socioeconomic status or anything other than the fact that we are individuals united in the fact that we have all sinned and we're in need of a savior, it's not kingdom. If it focuses on laying blame on people, if it focuses on pointing a finger, rather than reaching out to those that are less fortunate and giving them a helping hand, it's not kingdom. If it's steeped in accusation and negativity and promotes fear and suspicion, it's not our belief system. And this one is very prevalent. If it elevates personal feelings and experiences above truth, it's not kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom says that truth is something we discover. It's not something we get to decide. It's absolute. So we have to know and discern and be able to tell darkness from light. And I implore you, teach our next generation how to discern darkness from light. Maybe you don't have kids. 
Maybe you don't plan on having kids. Maybe you raised your kids. But if you are somebody that youth and children are drawn to, if you're good with young people, please sign up to work in our family ministries, work in the kids' church, in the nurseries, with the youth. We need you. We need you so that they don't get isolated, but they know that we're in their corner and you can help teach them the truth of the word of God amidst all this other stuff that sounds so good but tries to dilute what God created them to be, the identity that he has put on them and the absolute truth of the word of God. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you don't identify as a child of God at all. You, you might not be sure what the Bible says. The one thing that it very clearly states is that we are all in some way fallen short. We have sinned in some way. If you're perfect, like, I don't know. There, there's nobody perfect. Nobody except one. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus, although he was perfect and lived an absolutely sinless life, chose to give himself up in my place. I was a sinner and my reward should have been death. But Jesus came and he said, I'll take her sin. I'll take your sin. I'll take your sin. I'll take all the sin, as a matter of fact, upon myself. And I will take your punishment once and for all. And he gave up his life and he died for you and I so that we could be forgiven of our sin, made into brand new creations, be adopted in, like I've been saying, become a son or a daughter of the Most High God and become part of the family of God, get eternal life, get our identity restored. He gave us everything. He held nothing back. That is the truth of the Word of God, that there's a God in heaven who loves you that sent His only Son, Jesus, to die for you. I want you to close your eyes and just bow your head. And I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit speak to you right now. If you don't belong to God, if you've never given your life over to him and you're not sure that you believe everything that I've been saying today, that's okay. But I want you to know this, that God loves you. He is not mad at you. He's not upset about your belief system. He wants the best for you. And that's why he wrote down his perfect way in the Bible. And if you want to surrender your life today and start a new path with Jesus in your heart, surrendered to him, if you want to put your faith in him and change the way you believe, be forgiven of your sins and given eternal life, this is your moment. I want to pray for you. Maybe you're watching online. God loves you and he is not mad at you. He sees you wherever you're at. Whether you're watching live or a playback a long time from now, he's speaking to you right now. If you do not yet belong to him, he wants you. He wants you and he's waiting for you and he loves you. So if anybody in this room or online, if that's you this morning and you wanna give your heart to Jesus, you wanna surrender your life to him and change the way you believe, I wanna know who I'm praying for. If you would just raise your hand. Nobody else is looking around, but if there's anybody in here this morning that wants to give their heart to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
feel like the Holy Spirit is, even in this moment as we were doing a salvation moment, he's really restoring identity. That maybe you're not sure who you are, but God knows who you are. I believe I saw some hands back there, but I want to talk to the people that are online as well. God sees you and he knows you. He wants to transform your life because he loves you. The anxiety and the depression and the things you've been struggling with, they're not his best for you. So we're gonna pray together right now. Church, if you could pray together with me. Say, dear Jesus, today I give you my life. Forgive me of my sin and come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior and my very best friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Uncommon Church Podcast. If this message has impacted your life, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. And for more information on our church community, you can click the link in the description or visit uncommonchurch.tv.